This is ADH TV. The program is Save the Nation. I'm David Flint, and my producer is Charlie Noble. Well, tonight we have an interesting selection. We have Senator Erica Betts talking about his experience on uh, the jury program, defending the monarchy. We've got uh, Ian Plymer, Professor Ian Plymer, talking about climate change. And we've also got the economist, Leith Van Onselen, the unconventional economist talking common sense. And those are very interesting programs. You may wonder, and I've been asked, why is this program called Save the Nation? It's called Save the Nation because we believe that the politicians should not be your masters, they should be your servants. The politicians should be made accountable. And I've talked about this, and there's also a place where you can have a look at this. It's a petition which you can read, and a wrap is to appear at the bottom of the screen, which will tell you where to go. It's change.org forward slash take back your country. Change.org forward slash take back your country. I'm delighted to have on the program, Save the Nation, Senator Erica Betts. Senator, you made an appearance recently on uh, a Sky program called The Jury, and it was about the Republic. And your, your opponent was Craig Foster of the Australian Republican Movement. And I think uh, you did a, performed excellently for the monarchist cause. What was your experience, Senator? Well, first of all, it took me back to the days when I appeared before real juries and trying to keep people out of prison. But uh, it was a new experience to have uh, one of the advocates just shout at you, be obnoxious, talk over me, talk over the judge or the person in the middle. Uh, um, it was just quite astounding, the belligerence with which he put his cause. And I think even if I wouldn't have got one word in edgeways, I think he would have lost them 12-0 just by his presentation. But look, that said, uh, this simple argument of if it ain't broke, don't fix it, always cuts through, and the Republicans still don't have an actual model to put to us, and they can't tell us why the changes they're suggesting will make my life, your life, the viewer's life, any better, and indeed uh, now being able to point to the wonderful new Queen of Denmark, who's a, we claim her as a Tasmanian, also as an Australian, but it brings to life constitutional monarchies in other dynamic democracies around the world. And so the way the Republicans try to tell us that we're the odd ones out, etc., people now realise that in fact um, there are constitutional monarchies in the Scandinavian countries, in Holland, and so it goes on. So um, it was a good debate, good to be able to put the point of view across, but I must say I was overwhelmingly assisted by the bad behaviour of the Republican movement, and long may it live. <laughs> you, you're, the, the jury was given the question, should uh, Australia, or should Mr Albanese hold a referendum on the Republic? and uh, Craig Foster appeared. He'd uh, campaigned for The Voice, 
during that referendum campaign, he put off the Republican said uh, that the Australian Republican movement was completely behind the government on the voice, and this was very important. They've had, they've become effectively, this is the Republican movement, they've become the Republican army of the Australian Labor Party. And you see that in the Labor Party platform. As the platform comes out of each of their conferences, it's precisely what uh, the uh, Labour for a Republic group, LFAR. They're people from the Australian Republican movement. They attend the national conference and they put into the platform what they want. And they put in, for example, this new model, which uh, the platform also supports. And they also put in the provision that there be somebody on the front bench, that's what the platform says, who will be in charge of promoting the Republic. Well, they haven't got somebody on the front bench. They've got somebody certainly in the ministry, the outer ministry, and that is uh, Mr. Thistlethwaite, who's now the assistant minister of the Republic. But uh, what was absolutely delightful in that debate, I thought, was uh, when they came to deliver their verdict, because the verdict was 11-1, uh, wasn't it, in favour <laughs> or against their holding a referendum. And, and of course, when uh, the one yes voter was asked, why did you vote yes? He said with a sheepish grin, because he wanted Anthony Albanese to lose yet another referendum. So uh, his was actually a genuine no vote, but uh, turned it round to a yes to be yes. able to make the point that he wanted to see the uh, referendum fail yet again. But uh, yes, well, I think just that's on one that, of the uh, Just on that, uh, Eric, we've got a clip of that. So uh, Chris is, uh, Charlie is going to play that clip, clip to us and uh, go ahead, Charlie. Time is up. What is the jury's verdict? Okay, one of you voted yes, the rest voted no. You vote, okay, this is quite interesting. One yes, why? David, tell us why yes. I'd like to see, I'm sorry, I'd like to see Albanese run another referendum and lose it so that we can keep the uh, monarchy. <laughs> well, isn't that marvellous? Uh, Eric, just one final question, if I may. What's your feeling about their holding a referendum? Very hard to tell what their thinking is. They're keeping this um, Assistant Minister for the Republic, so it's clearly still in their mind. Mr Albanese is saying it's off the agenda for the time being, but they are so dogmatic and so um, belligerent, one wonders whether the no vote for the voice has taught them any lessons at all. And as you were saying, Craig Foster was out there for The Voice and it was that same sort of belligerence, overbearing, I-know-it-all attitude, you've got to listen to me and nobody else attitude, which turned many Australians off. And if they keep on down that track, and I hope they do, they'll continue to keep Australians well and truly turned off. Hard to tell what is in the mind. The government may well want a distraction in the event the economy's not going as, as well as it should. So they are keeping the fires burning. They're keeping the issue alive by having this assistant minister. So we've got to be prepared to ensure that we preserve this wonderful institution 
that makes us the envy of the world for future generations of Australians. And there could be no better way than uh, that to finish this interview. Thank you so much, Eric. Keep on fighting. I shall indeed. Thank you, David. I'm delighted to have as our guest Professor Ian Plymer, who's certainly the Australia's best-known geologist and certainly, I would say, on the record, the most qualified person and certainly the science to follow, the scientist to follow if you're looking for science in relation to climate change. Now, Ian, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Ian, I think one of the things that you've said during the many addresses you've made in public and interviews you've given, I've always thought the most telling is what you say about the ice ages, the six ice ages historically, because I think that just completely slays all of the arguments about climate change being related to CO2. What's that uh, story? Well, it's it's a very easy story to tell people that we're going to fry and die and we've got a catastrophe uh, just around the corner because if you destroy history and if you destroy the scientific method, you can tell people anything and they'll believe anything. But we have a long history in the planet where for more than 80% of time it's been warmer and wetter than now. Sea level's been higher than now. And there have been the occasional times when we've had the ice ages and we've had six great ice ages and there's a lot of debate about when they start and how they finish and why they start and why they finish. But during these ice ages, ice retreats during a glaciation and ice um, contract during an interglacial. Now, we have these in cycles and these cycles are about every 143 million years. We are currently in an ice age We've been enjoying cooling on planet Earth for the last 50 million years. And for the last 50 million years, we've been cooling and eventually we became cold enough where we had ice in Antarctica. And that was triggered by the separation of South America from Antarctica. We opened up the Drake Passage. We had a circumpolar current. That circumpolar current stopped warm water coming from the tropics down to the pole, and Antarctica got an ice sheet. That was 34 million years ago. So we are currently in an ice age that started 34 million years ago, and the Greenland ice appeared when we had South America join North America, and we closed off the Americas at Panama. We stopped warm water coming through from the Pacific into the Atlantic. We stopped the circulation of waters that kept the Northern Hemisphere nice and warm. It cooled down and we ended up with ice in Greenland. Now, once we had that ice, our ice age, uh, driven by the way in which continents are shaped and where they are and how ocean currents move, then the orbital cycles came in. And when we were close to the sun, we were warmer. When we were further away from the sun, we were cooler. And we've had cycles every 100,000, 40,000 and 20,000 years. So we're currently in an interglacial that started 14,700 years ago. It finished about 3,500 years ago and we're cooling down now. And during this period of cooling, we've had warming spikes such as in Minoan times. 
and in Roman times and in medieval times. So it's very easy to sell the catastrophe story if you have absolutely no knowledge whatsoever of history. So every time at the beginning of the Ice Age, there was more CO2 in the atmosphere, much more CO2 in the atmosphere than today. That's the punchline, isn't it? There, there was. And for at least uh, three of these great ice ages, we had 20% carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Now, currently we have 0.04% carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but we had 20%. So it obviously could not have driven global warming. And carbon dioxide is colourless, it's tasteless, it's odourless, and it's certainly non-poisonous because I'm breathing out 4% carbon dioxide. People working in submarines have an atmosphere with 7% carbon dioxide in it. So it is a non-poisonous gas, but it's a wonderful gas to attract, uh, to uh, attack because you can't see it and you can't taste it, and it is basically an expression of industrialisation and the modern world. So, in effect, you're, you're a Luddite by attacking carbon dioxide. You want to go back to pre-industrial times when we lived knee-deep in mud and, and when we starved, when we had shorter lives, when you had very poor health. That's what uh, the climate catastrophists want us to do. And now just on to another matter. You were no doubt surprised as I was when I read in The Australian it came from Agence France Presse from uh, Johan Rockström of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. And he said that uh, over the last 12 months, we've had uh, temperatures one and a half degrees hotter than the pre-industrial era for the first time on record. And he said it's likely to be the hottest in 100,000 years. Well, the first thing that, I, that surprises me is how could you say for the world that there's a, a temperature for the world? Is there a temperature for the world? Well, you've got to remember Potsdam had form and they joined East Anglia and Michael Mann and some of the other people who are eminently unemployable and unless they worked at Telengrafenberg in Potsburg, uh, Potsdam, uh, they would not have a job. So they've got form. Uh, and these people have been for a long while giving us the catastrophe story. It is demonstrably wrong, and it's wrong if you have a knowledge of history because um, we have warmed and cooled in, in the last few thousand years. 300 years ago, it was much colder, so we've warmed since then. During the medieval warming, it was about four or five degrees uh, hotter than now. We've cooled since then. Since the time of the Vikings, we've warmed. Since the time of Jesus, we've cooled. So um, we have exceptionally good historical records to show that. Secondly, he's making projections about this current um, interglacial, which is shorter and not as high temperature as previous interglacials. The last great interglacial we had was between 116,000 and 128,000 years ago. It was much warmer than now. Sea level was seven metres higher than now. So that was a serious interglacial. We're in a very weak interglacial. So basically he's talking up his own book so he can continue to get funding from the poor German taxpayers that uh, fund the uh, Climate Institute in Potsdam. Well, where does this world temperature come from? Is this some, some concoction, some averaging of temperatures across the world? 
Well, it's both. Um, you cannot have a world temperature simply because at the South Pole, which is at altitude and far south, uh, the temperatures get down to minus 80. Um, whereas if you're living in the deserts of Australia or in Saudi Arabia, the te temperatures will get up to 55 degrees Celsius. Now, we have a, a large number of terrestrial measuring stations in the cities and at airports in the US and Europe and the UK. Uh, most of the world is not well covered by terrestrial measuring stations. As for marine measuring stations, we have very, very few. So the average temperature is using a very biased sample, using samples where we've had the urban heat island effect heat up uh, cities and airports. And the best temperature record to use, which Potsdam and many other places don't use, is the satellite record. We have <clears throat> 40 years of a satellite record. This satellite record is telling us that we have cycles, we are living in times which are not unusual. So the, the um, temperature measurements and making predictions based on measurements are fraught with all sorts of difficulties because the scientific method is not being adhered to. And the first thing you ask is when someone gives you uh, an average, you say, well, what is the sample density? Who sampled it? How was it measured? Um, how was it corrected? What analyses were used? What were thrown out? And if you use those sort of questions, which Jennifer Marahassi has been asking with the Bureau of Meteorology, which costs a million dollars a day in Australia, if you use those uh, questions, then you, you see that the whole methodology is absolutely totally invalid. But the aim is to scare people, is not to provide people with accurate data. Am I right in my understanding that the Bureau of Meteorology in Australia has gone back over the records and changed <coughs> the temperatures, but they've all changed them one way? All of those temperatures in the, in the records seem to be being changed. Why is that? Well, you are correct, and I mentioned Jennifer Marahassi. She's done a lot of work on that. We have many temperature measuring stations in Australia. The Bureau of Meteorology only uses the data from some of them. For more than a century, we've had families on outback stations measuring temperature, measuring humidity, measuring the wind, measuring the barometer, and they have been faithfully recorded and sent to the Bureau of Meteorology who've decided to ignore all of this hard work that people have done for more than a century. We have measuring stations that were moved, such as in Darwin, which it was bombed and moved to the airport uh, during the war. But we've had other measuring stations like at Burke or at Rutherglen that have been there for a very, very long period of time. And so we've got a very accurate measurement using mercury thermometers over a long period of time. They are reliable measurements. But what the Bureau of Meteorology has done is that they've warmed the past measurements, uh, sorry, cooled the past measurements to make it look as if we've had a warming over a long period of time. And the second thing is they've changed in instrumentation. They have invented their own widget to measure temperature. So they're comparing widget temperatures with those done by standard mercury thermometers in a Stevenson screen. That, in science, is invalid. So um, we have a temperature record that has been destroyed by the Bureau of Meteorology. And in generations' time, people will not be able to use the primary data 
with artificial intelligence or any new technology that's coming forward, they will not be able to use these primary measurements to try to get an understanding of past weather in Australia. My record, uh, I, I seem to recall that under the Abbott government, there was to be an inquiry into the Bureau of Meteorology changing the temperature records. But when the Turnbull government uh, succeeded, the Abbott government, that was called off. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct, yes. There had been a lot of pressure on the Abbott government to actually make sure that we get our money's worth out of, uh, out of the Bureau of Meteorology. And they're basically a service that is meant to provide us with weather forecasts, especially farmers who rely on that. And many farmers now are going to private weather services that use different technology and use satellite imagery and using planetary alignments, and they are then able to make um, projections as to whether they should destock or plant, because uh, this has a profound economic effect on farmers who need to know what the weather is and what it's going to be. I've uh, got an old mercury temperature at home, and it always gives a lower temperature than the little gadgets that you get, uh, which are both clocks, and they also tell you the temperature. There's always uh, a couple of degrees difference between the two of them. I wonder why that would be. Well, they're different instruments, so you've got to cross-calibrate them. And this is what happens with scientific instruments. Now, when we started to change from measuring carbon dioxide with, from a chemical technique to an infrared technique, we didn't have cross-calibration. So all of the old information that shows that carbon dioxide has been up and down uh, during industrial times has been rejected and all we see now is a graph showing carbon dioxide going up, measured from an active volcano which is emitting carbon dioxide. Now the same with temperature. Uh, a mercury thermometer will give you a temperature plus or minus 0 0.1 degrees Celsius. That's a tenth of a degree Celsius. That's the order of accuracy. Yet we are getting scare campaigns where they're using the second order of accuracy so they're making a, a, a saying that we're going to have a 1.58 degree Celsius change and they're using old measurements for that. That's totally invalid. Mercury thermometers are extraordinarily accurate. Uh, any thermometer using a different technology needs to be calibrated. And this is what we do with scientific equipment all the time. We cross-calibrate over quite a long period of time. This has not happened with the Bureau of Meteorology's uh, widgets that they've invented for measuring temperature. It's not happened with them cross-calibrating with all of the past measurements which were done with mercury thermometers. So again, the basic scientific techniques they use are invalid, yet they've got multi-million dollar computers to process all the data. And it doesn't matter how much you process it, the primary data is invalid. You're saying then that uh measuring CO2 in the atmosphere is not an indicator of climate, yet our whole public policy in the West, in most Western countries, is based precisely on that. Why is it? Why are the well, politicians yeah, there are going There are many, many. Well, they're trying to get the green vote. And if you're on the conservative side of politics, forget getting, getting the green vote. They'll never vote for you anyway. Uh, I saw this morning uh, a plot from Wyoming where since the Dust Bowl times of the 1930s, temperature has been going down, yet the atmospheric carbon dioxide has been going up. 
So it's not possible to argue that emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. Only if you did argue that, you'd have to show that the 3% of emissions drive global warming. That's never been shown. It's never been shown. So the whole concept is based on a, a deck of cards. The whole concept is based on a fallacy. And if you could show that, you'd also have to show that 97% of the emissions, they're the natural emissions, don't drive global warming. So this has got nothing to do with climate. It's got nothing to do with the environment. It's a scare campaign where the power is being transferred to unelected people. And just finally, what surprises me that of all the politicians of the West, the only one of any significance who seemed to be honest enough to come out and say that uh, he didn't believe in all this was Donald Trump when he decided to take the United States out of the Paris Accords because it was doing such damage to the American economy. Why do you think is that? Well, uh, Trump's been in business all of his life. He's not been a politician. He doesn't owe any favours. He doesn't uh, rely on a bureaucracy. He's very much aware that in business and in politics, uh, people are self-serving. People are only in there to look after themselves. We now have um, a leader in Argentina who says the same. Uh, I think the changes are happening, and I think we will finally make changes when either we have a massive economic crisis as a result of our stupidity of wasting huge amounts of money or we have a war. But until then, uh, the party goes on and we taxpayers fund all these organisations to to frighten us witless and they frighten us so we can pay up more money. Thank you, Ian Plummer. Thank you for what you're doing for this country. Thank you for having me. My next guest is Leith Van Onselen who runs a, an organisation called Macro Business, which gives out the most extraordinary and very useful pieces of information on the economy. Welcome, Leith. G'day, David. Thanks for having me on again. A pleasure. And you can have a subscription to your site too. It's, there's a part that's free, but there, there is a subscription part where you get special messages, is there not? That's right, yeah. So basically, um, you know, Probably two-thirds of the articles are unlocked, so you can go and read them. Uh, about a third are locked. Um, if you subscribe, you basically get ad-free content because the ads are, uh, obviously help pay for the site. Um, but if you subscribe and you don't like ads, uh, you won't have your articles plastered with ads. And uh, from your email, you are an unconventional economist, are you not? <laughs> That's right, mate. Look, I, I came up with that name about 12 years ago because uh, about 20 other names that I tried to, um, you know, use at the time, so I had a previous website before Macro Business, uh, were all taken. So that was like n number 20th choice. But yeah, I certainly do try and look at things from a different angle to most economists. Do you think I should become an unconventional lawyer? Maybe, mate. You know, if you're uh, if you're going against the mainstream and you're trying to, uh, you know, obviously tell the truth on a lot of things, uh, maybe you should. Of course, lawyers appear for both sides, don't they, in law cases? Uh, the Productivity Commission came out with a, a report on housing in Australia and they came to the conclusion, as I understand it, that the problem in Australia about housing is supply. It's a supply problem. And I think you take issue with that, do you not? 
Yeah, I do. So it wasn't the Australian Productivity Commission, uh, which is a federal government body. It was the New South Wales Productivity Commission, which is basically oh, the New South right. Wales' equivalent. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But, yeah, effectively the New South Wales Productivity Commission has come out with a uh, report where they've basically lamented that Sydney's housing costs are so expensive, and it's true, uh, that basically Sydney, Sydney lost nearly 40,000 households aged between 30 and 40 years uh, over the five-year census period between... 2016 and 2021, and they said that this is problematic because those households aged between 30 and 40 tend to be, uh, you know, the most highly skilled, paying the most tax, uh, the most productive, and that this is effectively causing a brain drain from Sydney. And look, I, I definitely agree with the sentiments. Uh, we all know Sydney's housing is ridiculous. The median house price is about $1.6 million. You've got the most expensive rents in the nation, which are rising very quickly. Um, and Obviously, a lot of Sydney siders are leaving and they, have, and they have done so for the last decade or so. They're, they're going up north to places like Brisbane, southeast Queensland, et cetera, in search of a cheaper and better life because Sydney has become unbearable and overly expensive. Uh, and so I do agree with the sentiment. The problem I have with it, David, is that the New South Wales Productivity Commission has said that this is because we're not building enough homes. It's all a supply issue. And what they've neglected to mention is that Sydney's the, one of the reasons why Sydney has a housing shortage and has had one for you know a long period of time, and I'd, I'd argue it's the primary reason, is because it's had it's run a Australia runs a mass immigration program, and Sydney is one of the key landing points of those migrants. So just to give you some data around that, last financial year, so 2022 2023, um, New South Wales's population grew by 100. 74,000. And guess what? Net overseas migration in New South Wales was 176,000. Mm. So all of New South Wales's population growth and ergo Sydney's population growth was driven by net overseas migration. And to make matters worse, David, in the 10 years to June 2023, uh, New South Wales got nearly 800,000 net overseas migrants, which was 85% of the state's population growth. And of course, they overwhelmingly land in Sydney. So for the New South Wales Productivity Commission to say, oh, look, we've got this terrible housing crisis, we're not building enough homes, we need to relax planning and build apartments everywhere, which is what they said, um, is kind of a ridiculous solution when the federal government's fire-hosing in record numbers of people into Sydney, which is what, what is creating the shortage. And what I don't understand, well, I understand it because they're basically intellectually corrupt, but... Um, what I hate to see is when these government bodies, these you know, government organisations like the Productivity Commission, think tanks, etc., always pin the housing problem as a supply issue, and they never bother to mention that Australia is running an immigration program that is way too large, and it is way beyond the nation's capacity to supply houses, to supply infrastructure, to supply government services, and you know, in the next decade, couple of decades, we're going to have massive water shortages as a result. And that's, a, that's the issue I have with the New South Wales Productivity Commission's report. Their solution is to basically um, upzone everything. So basically zone everything for high-rise apartments. And they believe that this is magically, magically going to somehow sol solve the problem of too much population demand. And the problem with it is, David, is that in the second half of last decade, Sydney built a record number of apartments. Like we had, a, you know, Sydney had a massive apartment boom um, and the problem with that is just over half of those apartments turned out to be defective. So 
The New South Wales Building Commissioner released a report last month which said that 56% of apartments that were built after 2016 have serious defects. So just how on is that, it the solution? Just, just on that, Leith, uh, had that anything to do with the change in the inspections? Uh, before that, uh, inspections were a matter for the local council and they decided who the inspector would be. But I think, if I recall correctly, the government actually changed the law to allow you to choose, you as a builder, to choose your own inspector, which I find an extraordinary yeah, decision. Yeah, I think that happened in the 90s. So, so yeah, that, that certainly the, the, the whole system has been deregulated, but the bigger issue is... Um, that, well, that, was really, that, that was really dopey deregulation, or was it corrupt deregulation? Well, yeah, it, it, it was certainly short-sighted. So there's the whole sort of neoliberal argument that, oh, the, you know, the private sector can do it better. It's more efficient if we just deregulate it, blah, blah, blah. All the stuff we hear all the time. Um, that certainly has played a role. But I think the, the bigger problem, David, is that when we run a population policy or immigration program that is so massive, right, you have to build homes incredibly quickly. Like that's, you know, if you're going to have Sydney's population grown by around, you know, 80,000 people a year, which is what it did in the sort of 15 years pre-pandemic, you have, you have to build a lot of homes and you have to build them very quickly. And, and if you have to build those homes quickly, you're going to obviously compromise on quality. And, and, and what we saw in the second half of last decade during this apartment boom is we also saw a lot of, uh, you know, foreign home builders, like the, the Chinese builders come in and they just slapped up homes really quickly that were poor quality, that end up being poor quality. And a lot of those were to sell to, you know, overseas investors, et cetera. So the whole thing was a bit of a con. And um, so I think the, the solution is obviously re-regulate the industry, but you also need to take the foot off the gas and don't fire hose in so many people every year. And that, that basically means that, that means that your construction capacity can keep up and they can take their time building better quality apartments uh, instead of having to build as quickly as possible and compromise in quality and standards, which has basically been the Australian model over the past you know, 15 to 20 years. Before we go to the break, there's one question which I think is relevant and uh, at least uh, we're not like the United States. We don't have a president who's letting in enormous numbers of people. But why is, why do you think the, uh, the government here, the Albanese government, has had such out of control immigration, contrary to the wishes of the people? Why is it doing that? Is it to get votes? Or is it, or is it to lower the, the, the figures which suggest that we're not in a per capita recession? Yeah, look, uh, unfortunately, it, 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 it's a difficult question to answer because I don't really know. Uh, certainly before um, the last federal election, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese uh, said to the Australian media that his government would run a lower immigration program. So they actually said that. Um, and, you know, it was reported in the media uh, as early as, uh, as late as January 2022, before a couple of months before the election, that he didn't support the previous government's big immigration policy and that he, you know, uh, he, he wanted a lower immigration intake uh, for Australia. And then obviously once he got elected, he did the opposite. He, he basically staged a uh, the September 2022 Jobs and Skills Summit where he basically um, got in a whole bunch of pro-immigration lobbies, 
got them together and then came up with a fake consensus to basically ramp immigration to record levels. So, you know, as to why he his government chose to do that, it's a good question. It's certainly not in the interest of the Australian people, which he pretends to care about. Um, but there is a underlying, uh, you know, driver of this, David, and that's the Australian Treasury. So, unfortunately, the Australian Treasury only cares about two things. It should care about more. It used to care about more. It used to care about the well-being of the Australian people when I worked there back in the early 2000s. But all it cares about is basically the federal budget and whether the economy is growing overall. And hmm. for, for the Australian Treasury, immigration solves both of those two issues, right? So if you if you have a population, and, and we did this in the last, in the year to September, the population grew by 2.4%. The economy only grew by 2.1%. We're in a per capita recession. However, you know, the overall economy is growing and it gives the government, it gives the Treasury, you know, reason to boast that Australia, oh, we're still growing. And um, the other thing, immigration is fantastic for the federal budget. And the reason for that is the federal budget collects about 82% of the nation's tax revenue. And what that means is uh, when you have way more people coming in, you have more workers and, you, and businesses earn higher profits. So the federal budget gains from income, more income taxes and also gains from more company taxes. The problem with it is all the costs are borne elsewhere. So the costs of immigration are borne predominantly by the state state governments, which is why they're all massively in debt now, uh, because they have to build the infrastructure, they've got to supply the schools, the, um, you know, the, the hospitals, all those sorts of things, which falls on their balance sheet. So we've got this sort of cool. dichotomy where... Where, where the federal government who is responsible for immigration policy gets the benefits and they love it and they're pushed by Treasury to do so, but the costs fall on the state governments, which then fall on us because in places like Sydney, the state governments then go into massive debt and then they end up privatising everything and then we end up with, you know, Sydney being the most told uh, road yes. network in the world. Well, 20 years ago, you could drive around Sydney so, and basically... Sorry to not, interrupt not you, Leith. We'll come back to this. We'll come back to this after the break. Thank you. Well, Leith, we seem to have an impossible situation. The Premier of New South Wales is not behaving like a Premier should be. He should be standing up to Canberra, shouldn't he? Yeah, he should. And, and look, David, to be honest with you, I'd like to see the Premiers of Victoria, uh, Brisbane, sorry, Queensland and New South Wales stand up and say, look, you know, Canberra, you're, you're bringing record numbers of, uh, of migrants and you're getting the benefit from it, but we, we're bearing the cost and our residents are bearing the cost and you basically need to pay us $100,000 per, per migrant that settles in our cities. That would be fair to cover their infrastructure costs, to cover their, uh, their, their, you know, government services and all the other stuff that's needed. Uh, unfortunately, for some reason, they never do this. And I don't know if it's because of, you know, their, their, uh, their political allegiances. They never do it. And they never stand up to Canberra on this, which they should. But interestingly, David, um, the former New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet uh, actually fronted the Property Council last week. And he said he told the property council in a speech that that basically Australia's current immigration program is quote a Ponzi scheme and also quote lazy economics and he also uh, lamented the fact that the federal government is getting all the benefits from immigration and that all the costs are being lumped on the state governments and he actually demanded that the federal government compensate the states so I think that's the right the right attitude the problem with it is 
when Dominic Perrottet was actually Premier, he, he, he <laughs> towed a very different line. He, he called for more immigration when he took over from Gladys and uh, he, he, he argued that we needed 2 million migrants in, in five years um, and he basically said that the pre-COVID levels of immigration need to be doubled for five years. Well, guess what? The Albanese government did it for one year and Perrottet realised, oh, hang on, that probably wasn't a very smart call because it's created a rental crisis across Sydney and all these other problems. So, look, you know, it, it's a classic case of politicians having a Damas- Damascus moment once they leave politics and suddenly becoming honest. But unfortunately, they very rarely do it while they're in office and they don't tell the truth. Isn't there also a wider problem, and that is that uh, immigrants only come to Sydney and Melbourne because they are the only places where they can get jobs, there's no development in Australia outside of the capitals. And the reason there's no development outside of the capitals, as I understand it, is the question of water. When this government got in, this is the federal government got in, they closed off all of the plans for dams, building them or improving them, particularly the one in northern Queensland. They closed them off because Labor is now anti-dams. Ever since Hawke, they've been against dams and they have the power to stop dams all over the country because of the way the High Court has interpreted the Constitution. It seems to be ridiculous that we live on this continent where we're perched into high-rise buildings in Sydney and Melbourne and there's a vast amount of land across the whole of the country. Do you you think there's something wrong there in relation to the water policy of this country? Oh, 100%. I mean, look, the the, the whole thing is we live on on the driest continent on on Earth, so we can't actually sustain a massive population. You certainly, um, you know, unless you want to build a battery of desalination plants up and down the coast, which, of course, use a tonne of energy uh, and are incredibly expensive to operate, you need to build a whole lot of infrastructure for it. So the the way we've set it up at the moment, David, and this is the most ridiculous thing, is we're dumping... So take Sydney, for example. We're dumping most of the migrants in Western Sydney, which are 30 to 50 kilometres away from the coast, where we're going to have water shortage. It's also the hottest part of Sydney. And the solution is going to have to be basically building a whole battery of desalination plants and then pumping the water against gravity uphill about 30, you know, 30 to 50 kilometres inland uh, via pipelines that will have to be built underground because there's already built out with properties. It's going to be going to cost absolutely billions and billions and billions of dollars, right? And no no considerations ever given to this sort of stuff. What the what what the cost is going to be to build these things, to run them, what it's going to do to our water bills, all that sort of thing. Basically, we just bring in the people and we worry about the consequences later. Well, we don't actually we, we we don't even worry about it. We just let it happen. Um, and 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 that's just you know, I, I see a massive problem for Australia in the next you know, 40 years, for example, uh, running this policy because uh, if all the people pontificated about climate change are correct, we're going to have a massive fall in rainfall, uh, you know, we're going to have less water supply. So the notion of roughly doubling the population and expecting to somehow provide water to that population is delusional. It's going to cost bucket loads of money to do it. And so, and then... And then, then that brings you to the uh, the whole issue of this net zero. How are you going to need, achieve net zero when you've got energy guzzling desalination plants up and down the coast that 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 need a ton of energy to to operate? It's just that the whole thing is just silly, and all most of these problems could be avoided by simply not not not, not importing so many people in the first place. Like just well, run a sensible, sustainable immigration program. 
That's so, and uh, I would say one of the restrictions which they seem to have ignored is that you, you don't import people who bring with them the, the hatreds that they've had over centuries and try to apply them here. You, you bring people who are going to be good migrants and who are not going to bring their ancient hatreds to Australia. But getting back to water, my colleague Alan Jones has long argued. He's argued that uh, we have all the water we need in Australia just falls in the wrong places. And he follows in the tradition of Bradfield, the builder of the Sydney Harbour Bridge and Beale, who was very interested in moving the Clarence, and Ernie Bridges, who was an indigenous minister in Western Australia who wanted to build uh, tunnels to bring water down from the north of, of Western Australia into the south. He argues that you can, we can have sufficient water in this country where we need it, provided that we're willing to adopt what has been proposed in the past, but also that we go into the sort of recycling that Singapore does. Singapore now recycles all of its water and does it very well so that the water is a very high standard. And he says, we don't do enough of that. Is this also something which should be looked at by governments rather than worrying about uh, climate change, which doesn't seem to come? Yeah, look, certainly, I mean, the, the water issue can be solved through technology, technology and, uh, you know, if you want to build massive pipelines, et cetera. But the thing about it is all those solutions are very expensive, right? Like oh, it, yes. It's going to cost, it'll cost a lot of money to do it. So desalinated water costs about five times as much as, you know, traditional water. Um, recycled water is, you know, multiples as well. And then obviously the, the cost of building a pipeline from northern Australia to, you know, Sydney and Melbourne, for example, or Adelaide, it would, would cost a lot of money. It can all be done. But my, my, my bigger issue is why create the problem in the first place? Like, like why, why create all this extra demand for water uh, by, you know, doubling the population over, say, 50 years if you, do, if you don't need to double the population over 50 years? I've, I've done uh, that, back that, of that's, the... That's just, a bigger just, issue. Just interrupting you on this. I've done back of the envelope calculations and I worked out that if Western Australia were a separate country, and occasionally they do go that way, in fact, they were reluctant members of the Federation, probably the only reason they joined was because sufficient numbers of people moved from the eastern states because of the, the gold rush in Kalgoorlie and Coolgardie. They moved in and they were sufficient in numbers to change the vote at the time of the referendums for federation. But if Western Australia with its small population were a separate country and with its massive resources, it would be, probably be the wealthiest country in the world today. And you don't need a big population to be successful. Singapore's a, a good example of that, or Norway or the Netherlands. You don't need a big population to be a successful country. And I think you're, you're right to say, why have this enormous immigration, which is pointless. Yeah, look, I, I'd, I'd like to see Australia follow the Norway approach, to be quite frank. I mean, I mean, Norway's uh, taxes, it's, it's got about five, about, about the same population as Melbourne or Sydney. It's just, you know, about five and a half million people. Um, and it has, you know, lots of gas and oil, oil uh, reserves. And unlike Australia and unlike, you know, the UK and a lot of other countries, it actually uh, has kept their refineries and their oil and gas companies mostly in public hands, so they're government-owned. And also um, the, the private operators are taxes, 
incredibly high. And what that's meant is that basically they they earn enormous tax revenue from their from their uh, uh, oil and gas exports, and that's basically created a sovereign wealth fund that's now worth about two hundred fifty thousand US dollars per resident per citizen. Now. That, that's made Norway incredibly rich. It's also given them a disincentive to grow their population aggressively by population because as soon as you do that, you you basically dilute your wealth amongst more people. Australia does the opposite of Norway. We don't tax our resources properly. Um, we, we don't raise nearly enough revenue from it. And then we import huge numbers of people then dilute our mineral wealth so that the little that we do get as residents is then diluted amongst, divided amongst more people. So we do everything back to front in this country. And we, I'd argue that we'd be a richer country with actually, uh, you know, at, at 20 million people than we are at 27 million people because we'd be spreading our mineral wealth over less, uh, less numbers. And also, obviously, you know, we should be taxing our, our mineral uh, exports properly and copying the sort of Norway approach. Lethal, on that very sound advice, I'd like to thank you and thank you for your, what you're doing for this country and giving this unconventional economic advice. You're from macrobusiness.com.au, a very valuable site, and you can subscribe for even more incredible advice and very useful advice. Thank you so much, Leith. Thanks, David. Speak to you next time. Certainly. This is ADH-TV. The program was Save the Nation. I'm David Flint, and my producer is Charlie Noble. And until next time.